Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Sanctum family. It's Tess here. I just wanted to jump in before the episode gets underway to let you know that we recorded this before we found out the devastating news that Jacinda Barclay, a GWS Foundation player in the AFLW, cross-sport phenomenon and friend to many people listening, has passed away at the age of 29. We loved seeing Jacinda in action across several sports. She was truly a force and we just wanted to let you know our thoughts with everybody who loved her, was a friend to her, admired her and were thinking of you all. There is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Welcome back to the Outer Sanctum for another week. My name's Tess Armstrong. This is the penultimate pod for the longest footy season of our lifetimes. And as we gear up for the biggest weekend of the year, prelims and the Brownlow, I need myself some friends to help me chew through it all. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, it's Kate Sear. Hi, it's Julia Kiera. And hello, it's Rana Hussein. Rana, can we just ignore the others? Like pretend it's just you and me private yeah. in the chat group. How yeah, good Shay Bolton. <laughs> so good. Oh, my God. I was so thrilled for you. <laughs> During the week, you know, it's been a tough year in Victoria. I think I don't care about the footy, whatever. And then my team wins and they're the baddies. And I'm like, I don't care. Stick it up your jumper, everyone. <laughs> and in the private group, I'm going to you. I don't care. The word baddies. You know, it's very complicated. But he doesn't oh. mean stuff to you. What a game he had. He um, just made my night. Of course, like Tigers winning does make my night, but watching him kick three goals, I think it was, and just zip around that ground, oh, it was so beautiful. I will say, Tess, that we were unsociable Tigers and tend to be on game days because we take ourselves off to our own little chat, (laughs) which is... (laughs) Such a delight for me, I have to say. The finals weren't that super exciting. I mean, they were for Tigers fans and, I, you know, if you like seeing Collingwood lose, which I often do, that was exciting in a different way. But, Rana, what what did you enjoy on the weekend? Well, like I said, for me it was watching Shea Bolton having an amazing game and our little chat group, which I will say if you look back at our chats, it's just names of players in capital letters. (laughs) So, yeah, my highlight was probably Shea Bolton, but... I probably also want to talk about a low light, which was the woeful pies, not just that they played badly and so badly, but really I found myself getting so angry at Nathan Buckley for not trying anything. To me as a coach, your job is to attempt something. Okay, you came into the game with a plan in the first 10 minutes, he saw it wasn't going to work. Surely you're, what you're being paid for is to throw the magnets around, have a think about how am I going to win this game? How can we get, you know, take the next step in this game? I mean, I could be wrong, but it felt like he did just did nothing and went, oh, okay, well, we're stuffed here. And that really got to me. That's not footy. Right. Well, that's interesting because I feel like in footy parlance, you know how things go out of vogue, into vogue. Into vogue is really we'll back in our system. Mm-hmm. And so they say, well, it's our system versus their system. But at what point of like an absolute shellacking are you like, mm, I feel like we need to tweak our system slightly? Like mm-hmm. I don't know. Or do you just go, well, this is how we play. The more minutes on the ground, even if we're bad of the team playing this way is good eventually. Julia, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I just thought, and it was mentioned in the commentary, that the players themselves looked lacklustre. They looked tired, Grundy's not winning the tap. So you can't execute your system with people who are exhausted and 
floppy, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> especially against Geelong, who are really potent. The other thing also is that I think it is unfair to say that he didn't try anything. I think that watching the game, we are suffering from the fact that a lot of the commentators aren't at the ground, so they're just watching the vision. So we're probably not getting the full commentary of what is being tried and, you know, what is being said at the quarter-time huddles and so on. Yeah, they might not make a big positional shift, but that doesn't mean that they're not giving specific instructions about how to change their style or what they're falling behind on if they're not getting first the footy all those things like they are probably sending those messages we're just not hearing them because the commentators for the most part are in Melbourne so I've just written down on my tactics thing floppy footy is bad footy is what I'm taking (laughs) away from this podcast Julia did you have any highlights of the weekend I did. Well, yes, I did. Though they weren't great games, but I did. I did enjoy watching Lockie Henderson for Geelong. I think as a, a long-suffering Carlton supporter, you know, Lockie was at Carlton, and he was someone that was a bright spark for a number of years. So I have enjoyed watching his career continue elsewhere along with Zach Tui and he was kind of borderline to even get a spot this year in the Geelong side to so to see him play a really awesome final where he took 14 marks and really stood up in the back line was pretty great I have to say a low light for me was watching Metricon Stadium as this delightful Tropicana locale where people can be in a pool <laughs> and watch the game when they shot they put this the shot of the pool on the screen. That was outrageous <laughs> to be showing that to a Victorian audience. It needed to be pixelated, you know, that's yeah. rude. <laughs> rude on the tally. We're not allowed to leave 5Ks. We're wearing masks. We're doing all this stuff. And they can be in a swamp of chlorinated water with one another watching the football. I get it. Mm. Kate, what about you? Yeah, I agree, Julia. I think that needed to come with a with a content warning or something <laughs> for mature audiences only, for non-Victorian audiences only. I mean, the truth is both of the games were seriously disappointing and as a neutral supporter who doesn't go for any of the teams that were playing, I want to see, I just want to see close contests and we didn't get that. So that was a real shame. In terms of a highlight, a few good men played on another <laughs> channel and I, and I, because I, I switched the Collingwood Geelong game off at a certain stage and I watched that and, you know, the cross-examination <laughs> of Nathan Jessup played by Jack Nicholson was terrific and he ordered the code red and he admitted it at the end it was just it was great so I loved all of that um and a low light for me was some of the commentary in the Richmond St Kilda game where one of the commentators your your mate Tess James Brayshaw said St Kilda have given themselves a sniff here and I and I just want to say that when you've been sweating for hours that is not a good idea but look I mean I enjoyed watching, look, to be honest, I enjoyed watching Dangerfield play. I love watching Dangerfield when he's on. Uh, I love watching Dusty Martin when he's on. I, I, I enjoy as a neutral supporter watching those terrific players of our game. And When and, he's and, on and what, those... Kate? When he's on <laughs> what? <laughs> when he's turned on, when he's been right. he's plugged in, he's plugged in and he's switched on and <laughs> the light bulb comes on and he's off like a little... Energizer bunny. Yes, not not a floppy bunny. Good. Not a floppy bunny. (laughs) Exactly. But beyond that, yeah, the games were both disappointing. I love Shane Savage's goal. That was totally awesome. The highlights really for me were off the field. A big shout out to James Frawley, who is uh, retiring. And one of the confronting things that I know a lot of our listeners will have already gone through is that when players who are the same age as you retire and then you're like, oh, no, I'm like everyone else is younger than me and um, I do have photos of myself at a pub when I was little with James Frawley and I thought, no, but we're not retiring age. Like it's just a weird (laughs) concept to go through when your peers are kind of wrapping up their careers. And so it made me feel old. And then also what made me feel old was looking at the grand final entertainment and then going, yes, the symphony orchestra is playing. (laughs) I'm with you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The rest of the announcement is, of course, DMAS. I was going to say, I'm so out and out, old and out of touch, I don't know. Well, that's good. I'm going to say DAMS, 
Cubs board and uh, Wolf Mother lead singer. I guess he's doing like some kind of um, poetry reading on his own. <laughs> he seems to be alone, as well as Shepherd and Electric Fields. And Electric Fields are going to have Thelma Plum playing, and she is unbelievable. I feel like she should just play for the whole time. I'd be fine. Mm. Ask me, Moreau. It's like a phenomenon of kind of all Australian people, which I think is kind of awesome. Like I'm looking forward to it, and I feel like it's going to have real party vibes. My biggest concern is whether or not, of course, I'm going to be able to stay awake for a nighttime grand final because due to circumstances outside my control um, and in my uterus, I seem to go to sleep now at 8 o'clock. And so I'm really concerned about that. And similarly, I'm concerned for Sunday night, which is a travesty because usually my calendar says it's Monday night and that's when the Brownlow is. I don't know how we're going to juggle the Armstrong Zoom quiz, which happens every Sunday night. It's going to be really, I'm going to have to juggle all my social commitments in Victoria to get myself on the couch to watch the Brownlow. Similarly to the AFLW Best and Ferris, it's a virtual event only hosted by Hamish McLaughlin and Jackie Felgay. Um, I think it's going to be about 100 players that are invited. They're being encouraged to wear uh, it says in the article on Fox Sports, which made me laugh, in a break from tradition, players have been encouraged to wear a lounge suit and tie and to dress to their personality and style. The whole year is weird. So the only thing that's not weird, I suppose, is that we're going in thinking we already know who's probably going to win, right? A handful of people are up there. Lockie Neal is up there for Brisbane. Travis Boak is up there for Port Adelaide. Uh, we've got Christian Petrarca from Melbourne. Do we think there's going to be a massive surprise or do we feel like we're kind of in the bag? Rana, what, what do you think? I think it's in the bag, which is really annoying because I'd love an upset, but I think Lockie Neal has it. Julia? Look, this question would really need me to care. So... <laughs> Like Chris Scott in his press conference. I don't know the nice way to say I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. It's a midfielder's award. I don't care. Outrageous. (laughs) Lockie Lockie Henderson is Julia's tip. Lockie (laughs) Henderson. A Lockie. Any Lockie. Preferably Henderson. I mean, I think Lockie Neal is really well placed. The only issue, of course, is whether other Brisbane players take too many votes off him and someone who's a bit of an outsider, a bit of a dark horse pinches it, which I think would be good. It would at least make it interesting and help us all stay awake. <laughs> all help required. Um, I don't think I'm going to need help staying awake during prelim finals. They're absolutely my favourite finals of the year. And it kicks off on Friday night uh, with our Tigers, Rana, so we're seeing this one out, taking on Port Adelaide at the Adelaide Oval. What I want to do is go straight back to high school debating. We're each going to take a team. And we're going to pit them against one another and the listeners can make up their own mind of who they're going to tip. Kate and Julia, we've given you the task of Port versus Richmond. Who wants to start? I'm happy to start. Um, I'm going to tell you why I think Port is going to win. And I've got a couple of reasons. The first one is that Port played Richmond in round 11 and uh, won. They defeated them by 21 points in what was a really good match, if you can remember, all the way back then. Now, a lot of people have pointed out that Richmond were missing several key players in that game, but Port were also missing players. They were missing five players. And what's really interesting about Port is that they're going into the prelim with not a single player on their injury list. So they are in a very strong position to pick their absolute best lineup. They're also going to be playing the game at Adelaide Oval on Friday night, and it's a sellout. It was sold out in an in an instant. So Port, I think, has a big home ground advantage. And I know that's a really intimidating environment. Uh, it's got to be really difficult for an opposition team. But the other reason, I think the main reason I wanted to focus on uh, why I think Port will win is that I've taken inspiration from a friend of the pod, Dr. Bridie O'Donnell, who tweeted something out on Saturday evening when she was watching the Geelong-Collingwood game and she tweeted and said this, in keeping with my very short tradition of barracking for footy teams based on non-football reasons, I'm using a complex points-based framework that compares coaches' beards, team songs, hometowns of former partners and other miscellaneous factoids. And she said, go pies. Now the pies lost, (laughs) but... I thought there was something in this formula and in particular I do think beards and hair are likely to be definitive in 2020 because of lockdown. This is the year of hair. It's the year of all of those 
homemade hairdos and everything that we've seen on the players. So I did a little bit of analysis and I looked back to 2019. Both Richmond and GWS, who played in the grand final, of course, had three players with beards. Now, some people might argue and say that some had some stubble, but I ruled out stubble. So my assessment of this is final, by the way. I'm not entering into any discussion with our listeners. So Richmond and GWS both had three players with beards in the grand final, but the best groomed beard on the day clearly belonged to Bashahooli. He came second in the Norm Smith that day, and I think that's what swayed things Richmond's way. In 2018, West Coast and Collingwood both had five players with beards, but I think we all know that Josh Kennedy had the best beard on the day, and so West Coast one. And so for me, this is the battle of the beards and the two best beards are Hooley for Richmond and Charlie Dixon for Port Adelaide. And I just think Charlie has an extraordinarily well coiffed beard. It's got that whole kind of outlaw bush ranger vibe, which I feel is very 2020 for some reason. And I think that's going to make Port very tough to beat. So I'm backing Port power. Almost unbackable, except for the fact that I haven't heard Julia and I also back for Richmond. So Julia, hit us up. How are the Tigers going to beat Port? Kate, for such a smart person, that was absolutely redonkulous. How are Richmond going to win? Richmond are playing their fourth prelim in four years. Is that right? Mm-hmm. 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 I don't, I don't yeah. <laughs> I don't think you can underestimate how that experience really helps on the grand stage. And like in previous years, Richmond not, seems to know how to get themselves ready at the right moment. So, yes, they you're right. They did play in round 11. Richmond did lose. But the players that will be, we would assume, in that didn't play that game, a, a little person called Trent Cochin, the beard, Basha Hawley, as you've called him, Prestia, <laughs> Nan Curvis, Edwards, Graham. That's a lot of experience, poise, goal-kicking ability. Nankervis up in up in the ruck against Lysett and Laddams will be really important for them. I think that last week they they had such beautiful moments of potency and of the, the Richmond that we know where they can just not s- sniff but snuff out um, <laughs> the ascendancy of the opposite team, you know, where, where the opposite team looks like they're actually getting it together and Richmond just go and they kick a quick goal. They get it coast to coast. They up their pressure. Port have a a really kind of strong midfield, but I think Richmond's can definitely match it with them. And I think Richmond's also has a lot of flair that comes out of it. So they're not just kind of grunters and grinders with an E in grinder. They can do great things out of the stoppages. They can kick goals out of the stoppages. You both kind of had a little moment talking about Bolton at the beginning there. So I, I think they've just got all the puzzle pieces together and they've got that experience. I think all the pressure is on port. All the pressure is on port. They don't have this kind of prelim experience to fall back on. So I would be backing Richmond. I have no comment. I have nothing to say until (laughs) Runner and I's private chat on Friday night. (laughs) But I love it. It's actually going to be a cracker. Both finals are very hard to tip. The second final happens at the Gabatoir, as they like to call it in Brisbane. <laughs> Brisbane, surely the feel-good story. But um, tragically, I am going to argue that Geelong is going to win. So, Rana, I'm going to go first because I actually probably embarrassing for the Lions. Um, so, you know, I'm going to go first and then you can go last and that'll be the taste in people's mouth. So for Geelong, similarly with us, it's their fourth prelim in five years. On the weekend, they just absolutely belted the pies. I know Kate was watching a few of them, but... <laughs> Spoiler alert, Kate, they won by quite a lot. It was probably one of the most dominant finals performances since the Tigers' grand final victory over GWS last year. So it was just, they were so in sync. They completely ran the game on their own terms. They're undefeated at the Gabba in 2020. They've got the Coleman medalist in their team, Tom Hawkins, a captain who has surgery, like, and then a few days later gets back on the field and is a total freak in Joel Selwood. Patrick Dangerfield, who was just kicking bananas from the side and doing absolutely everything you could ever want a player to do and the retiring best player of the last 20 years in Gary Ablett Jr playing potentially his last game if they can't get through to a grand final so they've got stuff to play for they also had tricks and had a very like full team everybody contributed so they took advantage of the pies who came out of the block so lethargic and Brisbane have had a week off they may be lethargic who knows and so if the cats can take advantage of that again 
look at. And yeah, I'll just mention um, before I get to the hardcore evidence, Patrick Dangerfield, he's really good at football. And so I can't imagine a team beating him if he's on. But I thought going with Kate's theme, you went beards, but in Bridie's list also included theme songs. And so I had a look at the theme songs. Of course, the Brisbane song is the French national anthem. So it was written in 1792. We all remember that great year. After the declaration of war um, by France against Austria, the author was a French revolutionary army officer and the mayor of the town that they were in said, we need something to rally the troop. And he wanted them to defend their homeland that is under threat. So I'll say Queensland is under threat from all the other teams that have come up to the hubs. And so Claude, the author, goes, steps up to the plate, writes the song as a pump up for the troops. And that's how I see Chris Fagan as, who became the leader, you know, the team really needed, the homeland's under threat from all the other teams. And so that's fine. There's also two teams in Queensland now, so it really doesn't work as well. Whereas Geelong... Toreador. The Toreador March is sung in the opera of Carmen and it's sung by the bullfighter Escamillo as he enters Act 2 or as I'm going to say Gary Ablett as he enters the Gabba in Act (laughs) 3 of his career and the third game of their finals campaign. Now Carmen was written by George Bazette in 1875 and it was about a beautiful girl who worked at a factory. Now I grew up in Geelong, it's a factory town. We had the Ford factory, the Shell refinery, so you know, it all worked well. The song is sung by the bullfighter as he walks into this like area, because everyone's there, and he wants to impress Carmen. So he sings the song. And now I see Geelong wants to impress their town. So they walk into the Gabba and he wasn't successful at first because he lost out to Don Jose. And that's like when they went to Port and they lost to Ken Hinckley. Eventually Carmen's like, that song's a banger. I love that factory, love that town, and they win. <laughs> and he wins the day. And so that's why I think that Geelong is going to win. Also, in the song Toreador, there is a lyric that says, the arena is full from top to bottom, the spectators are losing their minds, the spectators begin a big fracas, and then he wins. So I'm sorry, I don't see how evidence can overcome that, Rana. I mean, look, Julie and I have been pitted against two stunning lawyers so I already object to this <laughs> What? And they've gone with beards and themes. <laughs> I mean, you have Amazing. presented compelling evidence, but I'm going to lay out my counter offence. So, look, Brisbane Lions are the bigger cat and I could probably <laughs> just finish there. I don't feel like I need to say anything else. <laughs> But I might. They are coming off a rest, which should help them. But as you said, Tess might not. It's kind of like one game in 28 days or something. But it's a home crowd, a home game. I mean, when was the last time they weren't in Queensland? <laughs> I don't even know. The momentum for them is going to be huge. Geelong play possession footy, which I think Brisbane can dismantle by applying their amazing pressure. Geelong kind of need, look, I've done some maths, which is unusual for me. So take this with a grain of salt. But I reckon it's like 70% accuracy they're going to need for their system to work and apply a bit of pressure and that crumbles. So I think Brisbane can do, uh, Brisbane have that in spades. Pressurising players coming off the back line is going to do that job for them. Cameron is in really good form. They've got some amazing players at the moment. Cameron, Lockie Neal, Harris Andrews on Hawkins, I think is as good as anyone in the league. And I think that Geelong, Hawkins in particular, are so predictable. So they're not going to be hard to unravel, I don't think. And Brisbane have the likes of Hipwood too, who is super versatile. While he's up forward, he can also really defend and they're going to need that. And look, I think that listeners should just be impressed by how much footy I just spoke because it's rare for me (laughs) to actually talk football. So that alone. Oh, I've got a question from the audience. Oh, it's not a question if I can just offer a comment. (laughs) The other thing is Brisbane has one of the great feminist thinkers of our time in Grant Birchall <laughs> who has played Geelong many times in preliminary finals and knows how to win them. Brisbane's system will outplay Geelong's and Geelong will be tired after this last round. But really, ultimately, and you mentioned Fagan, I think the real telling sign for this game is that Brisbane have the more likeable coach and that (laughs) will get them over the line. Who isn't behind Fagan? Like, honestly, he has all of Queensland and the sheer will of that positive energy plus just his good karma compared to Chris Scott. Brisbane will have it. That is my case. 
I love it. Thank God it wasn't based on beards, beards, because <laughs> otherwise um, Chris Fagan was stuffed. Are you ready to roll up your sleeves and mellow, ladies? So it's been a big week, as every week is in football, where crisis comes to town to one particular club and questions are asked about that mythical concept of culture. Rana, what happened this week at Essendon and what does it tell you about culture? Well, look, questions have circled around Essendon's club culture with marquee players like Adam Saad and Joe Danaher asking to leave uh, and even ex-employees starting to speak out and lots of talk about staff being scared to speak up and just a lot of, I guess there's been a lot of changes for Essendon and they've had a really rough trot, obviously, with the supplement saga. And clearly on field, they haven't had a good year either. There's a lot of talk about that. Um, hub life exacerbating all of these issues as well but the other thing around culture for me that's come up this year we've got Essendon who appear to be sort of crumbling we also have a lot of conversation around the culture at Tigerland QL uh, with a lot of stories starting to come out from other clubs too about behavior and misbehavior and I'm just interested I guess in what when we talk about culture what do we actually mean what exactly in something you know tangible terms do we actually mean when it comes to culture and what on a practical level do we need to do when we want to shift culture working at a club myself I guess you know you talk about attitudes beliefs values but I'm interested in what what exactly and Julia you know you might have some thoughts on this at a footy club what is it that you do to create culture Yeah, I think sometimes culture in the conversation can get mixed up with traditions or that there are strong traditions. Um, And for me, that's not culture at all because you can have lots of traditions that probably need to go, (laughs) Um, but they do make people feel comfortable because they they mark the rhythm of the year and um, people that's what they've always known so they want to stick with it but for me you, you mentioned you know people didn't feel safe to speak up so for me culture a positive club culture is around safety safety to be able to speak up a person feels safe that if they feel uncomfortable or they see something wrong or they're unsure that they can ask questions that they can speak up that there is people in leadership are approachable there there is this sense of safety that there's safety to try and to fail there's safety to experiment and this is all like on field if you think about with skill development or with um football strategy you know the safety to to try something new and even if it doesn't work out that's okay we probably learned from something from that process and the same applies to off-field stuff the same you know that let's let's explore different ways of doing things off-field it's all about that's that's safety to explore and for me that's culture that's about the interpersonal relationships that are there that you're not in such a fixed mindset that this is the way we've always done things that if we just bring in talent it'll speak for itself so yeah, for me that that's the core of it, a feeling that everyone in this environment feels safe to try, speak out, that if they if they say something a bit odd or new that it will be heard with respect and with an open mind and that people feel safe to be themselves. And when you talk about concrete steps to make that happen, yeah, I guess that's that's a hard one because I think if you're you're not used to being in an environment that feels like that, you don't really know how to get there. It didn't occur to me how geography plays a part in culture too. I know, you know, at Tigerland, being near the MCG, being in that space, being in Richmond, it means a lot. And even having that routine that you go to the same place every day and you switch into this mindset that suddenly you can't just pick that up and dump it in another state in you know a resort it's been fascinating to see how hub life has really affected culture for clubs too but also you know with Essendon they're clearly in a rebuild they're clearly trying to build something and leave the past behind I feel for fans how do you handle how do you handle it when your club's culture is poor or they're lacking culture you know what are you actually what can you do as a fan in that situation do you just kind of sit back and let things happen and trust that your leaders are going to do something about it I actually think that's a super interesting conversation because you know if you think about footy clubs they're this weird hybrid of being you know a company you know a big corporation really where they've got marketing pressures sponsor pressures and then they've got 
members you know who who pay money to be to be stakeholders in that club and I know for myself like when St Kilda had extremely good reason for their culture to be questioned several members of my family emailed them and they've taken steps to you know make changes to their culture and that's great but I also think in terms of Essendon this week a lot of Essendon fans are texting me and they're devastated because it is really heartbreaking when the thing that you love so much because you love those players because they play for your team and they don't want to be there and that is so confronting however outward conversations and internal conversations are so different at footy clubs they can't come out and say yeah you know what this place is cooked and this is all the stuff that's bad and this is all the because they've got sponsors and they've got fans and they need members and they need money and they need people to have hope that one on field they're going to turn it around and that off field things are never as bad as, as they seem and that's also true things are never as good as they seem at Tigerland you know this year we've had a lot of questions about our culture when last year it was the bees knees and things are never as bad as they seem and never as toxic as they seem and things are quite nuanced internally there's no way they're not having a conversation about is this a place where people want to be and how can we make this a place where people want to be but it must be such a tricky line to walk I think as fans you can you can say to your club I'm not happy I'm not happy with the way that you are and who knows who reads that and if they go okay Joe Blow but I don't think they do I think they I think they care what their fans think this year particularly having no fans at the footy turns out fans are quite important at football and to football clubs absolutely I was just going to say now more than ever I think clubs are listening to their paying members so if you are a paid up member they're absolutely going to hear what you have to say some months ago Tess you made this suggestion on the pod that you would like to see a fan sit on the AFL exec and for there to be a a fan voice and part of me wonders I mean all of us who are members of clubs can we do have that opportunity to write to our club or if we're fans of clubs we have the opportunity to write to our club we have the opportunity to go along to the annual general meeting and ask questions and so on but that that kind of engagement is also quite limited when you're talking about a club that might have you know anywhere between 30 and 100,000 members and many more fans and so I would like to see more diversity on the board you know, on in boardrooms uh, of clubs I would like to see people who don't have a corporate background who aren't just there because they have connections to industry and and partners and so on be on the boards of clubs and I know that a lot of clubs have put people on boards in recent years that have a background in diversity inclusion culture etc but it's still not enough and I would like essentially ordinary people like us to get those opportunities or, or our listeners to get those opportunities to have a seat at the table to make to be involved in these conversations and I and I think as, as Rana says you know that feels more important than ever now uh, in a post-COVID world. Well, I did mention that um, the Richmond culture has been questioned quite a lot this year with a, with a number of incidents, which is, as a fan, extremely hard to handle. I hate, I hate it. But we did have another questionable weekend on the field and with a few comments that have, you know, really left people asking questions. Kate, take it away. Yeah, well, Tom Lynch was a huge talking point out of the game the other night and we talked about him earlier. So perhaps most prominent talking point out of the Richmond game, Richmond St Kilda game, was that Lynch had dropped a knee to Saints player Dougal Howard somewhere in his sort of neck, neck, shoulder, head region. And there was a lot of talk about whether Lynch would be perhaps suspended uh, and unavailable for the prelim as a result. He was fined a whopping $750 for the incident. But what was really interesting to me was some of the comments that uh, followed that inevitable huge discussion about that incident. Um, and I just want to share a couple of them with you because to me there's there's a lot to unpack here. So Jonathan Brown said that Lynch shouldn't have been cited for that incident at all. And I'll tell you what Brown said. He said if that was the only thing he did for the night and didn't crash into packs and play with great presence like he did, you'd be disappointed. But he was fantastic. And if he'd kicked straight, he would have been best on ground. Jonathan Brown was also asked if Lynch had damaged his reputation this season, not just because of that incident on uh, Friday night, but because he'd been cited five times throughout the season. And to that, Jonathan Brown said, wouldn't have thought so if he wins a premiership. Damien Hardwick was then asked about this at the post-match press conference. Uh, This got a lot of coverage he said the fact of the matter is it's a big boys game you know things happen and players will always play hard and tough and there's a reason we're into our third or fourth prelim in a row so there was a lot of debate about 
these comments, but much of it focused on whether Lynch's conduct should be sanctionable and whether the penalty that Lynch got was ultimately fair. But I want to just focus on something else for a moment, and that is on the language that both Jonathan Brown and Damien Hardwick used and the logic that I think is at play there. Because to me, those comments come across as totally tone deaf. This is not a big boys game. This is a game for everyone. And when you sit out, sit outside of the hegemonic norm, I can tell you that that kind of language can feel and sound very exclusionary. Girls and women hear those kind of comments and they feel like Damien Hardwick is saying, this is not a game for you. you, you don't belong. And whether Damien Hardwick meant it or not, it also sounded to me like what he was saying was that this is the way that big boys, so men, play footy. This is what men do when they play footy. They break rules and they're sometimes violent and that is okay because it generates dividends. We're in our third or fourth prelim in a row. And when you put those comments alongside those of Jonathan Brown, who seemed to me to also be saying that Lynch's actions, which were an offence under the rules, don't forget, that he seemed to be saying that Lynch's actions could be redeemed by the fact that he'd had a good night. Moreover, if they go on to win the premiership, he's beyond reproach. What was interesting to me is that at the same time as all of this was unfolding and Brown and uh, Hardwick said these things, Chloe Hart published an article for the ABC and she noted fears among experts that family violence was going to spike during the footy finals. And I know that violence against women is a very complex phenomenon. It's shaped by numerous forces, but one of the most important forces are these rigid gender roles and norms and stereotypes and processes of socialisation that teach men and boys that being weak is a character flaw, that violence is an expression of strength, and that other ways of expressing one's feelings, including one's frustrations, aren't. And so what I feel is that the logic that we heard from Brown and from Hardwick, even though unintentional on their part, overlaps with the kind of rhetoric that we hear in discussions about the sort of gender norms and stereotypes and rigid gender roles that are applied to men and women. And we just find ourselves repeatedly in this situation where we're asking people to understand, people in footy, people who are very experienced and I think people who should know better, to think carefully about the way that they use language. But for the most part, it's just repeatedly ignored by mainstream media and by footy commentators. And I'm really frustrated by it. As you can probably tell, I'm disappointed. And I would have liked a bigger conversation in the aftermath of the Lynch incident. It's no surprise that I completely agree with what you're saying. And Kate Sheila, who's one of the co-captains at St Kilda, tweeted that, you know, she was fined the same amount, $750 for an incident during the AFLW season. But when we're talking about the proportion of someone's wage, you know, the the Tom Lynch thing is barely a slap on the wrist. It's a it's a feather duster grazing past your shoulder um, compared to the, the fine for um, Kate. And I think that for me with the Tom Lynch thing is that when will change occur? Like this person is doing the same thing over and over and over. Yeah, they've done it five times in a year. In the commentary we'll hear, well, it's a bad look. You know, he was lucky that it didn't damage him and so on. But to me, this idea that, you know, Harbick said that we want players to be playing close to the edge um, because that's how that you, you do need a level of aggression to play this game well. But all these incidents, the ball hasn't been there. The ball isn't there. So surely there's a difference. I totally accept that being a great forward means you have to be aggressive when you leap up at the ball. Okay, you can't stand flat on the ground and hope to take a chess mark if there's a pack around you. I totally get that. But when the ball is gone and you're still doing these nasty little things, it speaks to something larger that you feel invincible, that you can just be violent, not aggressive. You can be violent on the field and that you can be excused. I think that sends a really terrible message to everyone involved in football, not just women and girls who are feeling like it's not a space for them, but little boys as well who think about, well, this is how I survive on the football field. 
Yeah, Julie, that is very true. And I'll hark back to what I earlier said about how sometimes there are internal conversations and external conversations and they're very different. And I did hear players say in radio interviews over the weekend that Damien Hardwick during the week had really berated them about off-the-ball incidents and had said, stop giving away freeze, stop carrying on because it cost us the game against Brisbane. It cost us the game earlier in the year against Port. And we're going to go to Port Adelaide. We're going to have the crowd against us again. We're going to have the players doing exactly the kinds of things they were doing to try and get a reaction out of our players on Friday night and we can't go down that path again so internally clearly they know that externally it's just so annoying when you hear things like that because I don't want to be all ABC fact check but that's not how we won our other prelims like we haven't (laughs) been a violent on aggressive on the field team we've actually been a bunch of dags who told jokes to each other and loved each other and talked about love and connection for years and years and years that's the bit that we loved and that's the bit the fans really got behind and felt was really special that's the culture I was proud of and that's what I want us to get back to so I think that's kind of just like retelling history in a way that suits the narrative in the post-game press conference because those quite annoying for coaches to do and so often they say things and then they go oh I wish I hadn't said that and I do hope he thinks I wish I hadn't said that and that internally there's a different conversation this week. Rana? I think the thing that interests me and you sort of have touched on it in terms of fandom and Callie Underwood mentioned this on Offsiders on the weekend. When we think about Hawthorne and the three-peat and that era, there was so much around Hawthorne being aggressive and unlikable and unsociable. But when we look back on them, we talk about them as heroes and what a champion team. And Callie mentioned, you know, if Richmond go on to win a premiership, will we do the same for them? And I wonder how much of this is on us as well what we choose to remember and what we choose to forget and how do these teams become our heroes and what narrative we tell ourselves about these teams I can't help but wonder what's our responsibility in all this as well speaking of heroes um Some of our listeners just absolute heroes to me. So earlier in the year, we started a new segment called The Fifth Quarter. Now, I have been saying it for months and I contend I have an opener in the ABC system. Corbin Middlemas did uh, did voiceovers for it. I got him to voice things. And then we threw them essentially out the window because we all started singing every week. And um, Godspeed original intro because you've got nothing on the songs that we've been managed to do this week. And this week, got a little treat. In the inbox from a lovely listener, Kat P, who's taken it on herself to make her own fifth quarter opener. Lucy and Shelley have caught up to chat about what they've been culturally diving into. But for now, Kat, take it away. Here's the thing, we started out well. Then too many lost their sense of smell. Yeah, yeah. COVID-19. The footy stopped, then moved in to stay. Out of sanctum kept us feeling great. Yeah, yeah. COVID-19. And all you ever hear me say is what did Rana watch this week? I need a new show today. Here comes fifth quarter. Well, it's my favourite part of the pod. I guess I like footy too, but thanks to you, now I know what to watch. Thank you, Fifth Quarter. What a treat to hear an intro to the fifth quarter by one of our listeners. Thank you, Kat. That means the world. I am here with Shelley. How are you, Shell? I'm great. How blessed are we to have such wonderful, amazing people in our lives? It's just amazing the things that people will do for us. And I'm not sure that they realise just how much those little things like sending us pictures every day means, but it really has been helpful, hasn't it? Oh, it has. It's just a delight to see them on their social media. But to do this is next level. It's pretty special. Well, aren't we lucky that we get to do fifth quarter this week? I've been thinking about the things that I'd like to recommend and I love doing fifth quarter, but I thought what I might do today is share some things that I've found really helpful this year, especially through the thick of lockdown. And 
these things really have driven my recommendations this week. The first thing that I have really been trying to do is to read stories that illustrate the universality of the human condition. So things like historical novels, notably quite a few that feature the plague, but stories that make me feel, I guess, a connection to people across the world and across time and make me feel like I'm part of something so much bigger than this little house that I'm stuck in. And a book that absolutely did that for me and one that's easily in my list of favourites for the year is Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet. Have you heard of it, Shell? No, I haven't. Tell me, tell me more. So it's been on heaps of must-read lists. It won the 2020 Women's Prize for Fiction and it's a story inspired by the son of that very famous playwright, the one whose name rhymes with Bakes here. (laughs) What I loved about this book, though, was that the playwright is really just a bit player to the point that he's not even named. So the main characters are his wife and his children and it is beautifully written. The first half of the book has a tempo that makes it so compelling. I couldn't put it down, but it's also one of the most profoundly moving and illuminating portrayals of loss and grief and what effect those ripples can have on family and relationships. It's it's a funny one because I think telling stories about famous people can be really fraught, but Maggie O'Farrell's clearly avoided those stereotypes and she's placed Agnes, who people often call Anne Hathaway, at the centre of the story. And I know people who've actually read this book without realising that the husband is Shakespeare. There's a real power, I think, in telling the stories of women who for so long have only really existed in reference to their husbands and in my humble opinion but for many reasons I think this is a perfect novel. Sounds wonderful. So the only thing I'd say is take care of the themes of loss and grief are a little difficult for you at the moment. The second thing that I found super helpful when my brain is getting too noisy or busy or won't stop thinking is a series of podcasts that have actually helped me really find that place of peace and quiet. And it's a podcast called Strong Songs. So each episode, the host, Kurt Hamilton, breaks down a song and analyzes the parts of that song that make it into the awesome whole that it is. And so even though it's pretty technical and he talks about the nuts and bolts of music and instrument, It's also really accessible and I found that focusing on something so specific and in so much detail, my thinking starts to slow down and I feel so much calmer. So I don't know if you saw this week, Shell, all of the TikToks featuring Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. So it started out with this guy who filmed himself cruising down the road on his skateboard, drinking some cranberry juice, and the music was Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. So you'll have to do a dig in, but there's been heaps of awesome takeoffs of it. Oh, no, I did see that one. I did. I realised people had started taking it off. (laughs) What I'd like to recommend is that Kurt did an episode featuring Dreams and also The Chain by Fleetwood Mac back in September. So... I highly recommend people have a listen to it. So what about you? What's been keeping you occupied or entertained? Well, they let me out. They let me out of the house to go to work last week. So it was it was all very new and very exciting. And um, if people don't know, I got to be a radio presenter for Jacinta Parsons at ABC. So I was very blessed to get out and about. So I've been very busy and I thought I'd have a look at Jacinta's book because Sitting in her chair, I thought, I want to know more about this woman who's just released a book called Unseen. And it's about living with a, a chronic disease. And at the age of 20, she started feeling quite unwell and she was be- basically barely unable to function. She couldn't eat, she couldn't get out of bed. And then she was eventually diagnosed with Crohn's disease. It's an, a, one of those really sort of unseen diseases, inflammation of the bowel disease, which is quite debilitating. So she learns in the book about the pain and living with it and how to pick herself up and get through living with a chronic disease. And it's all about that sense of loss of identity and rediscovering who she is. It's something that, you know, a lot of people can relate to, Lucy. Like I've got endometriosis and a lot of women have got their own thing. Men have got their own illnesses that they, they live with that we don't talk about openly. So what's so great about this book is that here she is doing this and it invites us into a conversation to not be ashamed of having something like this, you know, or living with it and also enables people to have empathy for people who do live with chronic diseases that have this silent sort of agenda where nobody really wants to talk about it or, you know, pick yourself up, you'll be fine kind of 
thing. So that's a really great book, Unseen by Jacinda Parsons. You have to read it. it it's quite brilliant. And then when I had to pick myself up, Lucy, because I was exhausted after doing that, I watched a, bed, a movie in bed and I chose Just Mercy. I filmed just out just this year and it's about Brian Stevenson. He's a, a lawyer who graduates from Harvard. Harvard University, he opens up an equal justice initiative where he wants to help people on death row and represent them if they weren't represented correctly or if they're innocent. And it's just this amazing story about this man called Walter McMillan, which people refer to him as Johnny D, and how he works hard at getting these men either off death row or um, having them have a trial that is right for them. I'm going to say you will cry, you will cry a lot, and you will ugly cry but it leaves you with a sense of hope about so many things, you know, about fairness in the criminal justice system and making sure that, you know, people are heard. So that was me. We really do get across a whole lot of things, don't we? I sure do. And we hope everyone takes something away from that and there might be something, you know, everyone likes different things, don't they? That's what's, it, that's what's so lovely about the world. Excellent. So good to catch up with you, Shell. Loved it. You take care. You too. See you soon. Thank you, Lucy and Shelley. My summer list is of things to catch up on is growing by the day. But any, anywho, it's nearly time for us to get out of here. Um, but it's time for final business. I will just want to shout out to Amanda Shalala on ABC News who published a just excellent article with Megan Schutt from the Australian Cricket Team on the weekend talking some real talk about periods and fertility and pregnancy and all those real things. Go and check out that article. We'll put it in the show notes. I just wanted to give a uh, shout out to our very own Emma Race and Lucy Race who have created this extraordinary new project which was launched today called Making the Call. It's a program that's designed to create pathways for women's voices in sport. So they've teamed up with the Victorian government's initiative called Change Our Game and that initiative is aimed at increasing the number of women and girls who are participating in sport on and off the field and what they're doing is delivering their first ever pilot program which hopes to train women or will train women to become sports commentators. The pilot program is going to focus on Australian rules. There'll be five online sessions with key industry experts learning how to call play-by-play, offer special comments and do boundary writing and expressions of interest are now open. They're open for one week, so they close next Wednesday, the 21st of October. So if you're a listener uh, and you're interested, please do apply. They're super passionate about 50-50 gender equality in all aspects of sport, and that objective is driving this new project, and you can find all of the details on our socials. So please get involved, spread the word, and apply if you are keen. And finally, a uh, really big congratulations to Tanya Hosh from the AFL. She was just recognised as the South Australian of the Year for her many years of work on racial equality and diversity and inclusion. She will now go for the National Award, so she's nominated on behalf of South Australia for the Australian of the Year. We wish Tanya all the very best and a huge congratulations on that incredible honour. Very big congratulations. Well, it's nearly time for us to get out of here. If your team is playing this weekend and still in the finals, good luck to you. Get your two-litre bottle of iced coffee and just, like, have yourself a party watching your team this weekend because footy's a crazy game. We've got four teams. Anything can happen. Who knows who we're going to see as well as the Queensland Symphony Orchestra on the 24th of October. Uh, there's only one thing left for us to say. Go, Go footy! footy. <laughs>Deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.